Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. How's re-entry? Uh, re-entry into conversations with you? Into the rest of the world after the Labour Party conference. I mean, it's like leaving a sort of a sort of Big Brother house. Do you know what I mean? Tell us about your best bits. Diary room. Um, well, I don't know. It's sort of strange because you end up in just this sort of conference bubble. Right. We were getting a taxi to the station and the taxi driver said, so has the Tory conference happened or is that next week? And I was sort of reminded, actually, most people are not paying any attention to these conferences. Anyway, my 30th year, as I said last week. Did you get a commemorative plate or anything? God, the commemorative plate obviously got forgotten. But anyway, I did lots of selfies, lots of nice comments about the podcast from people. Has your selfie, has your selfie technique changed over the years? Well, I think they didn't have selfies when I first went to Live Buddy Conference. It was someone with a box brownie. Honestly, I mean, maybe there's a book to be written about the history of the selfie. When was the first ever selfie taken? It's a good question, isn't it? Would you would you count a self-portrait by an artist? Maybe on the wall of some cave somewhere, someone drew themselves after looking into a pond. But do you have a particular technique? Do you, do you find that your arm, because you're quite tall and your limbs are quite long, uh, you get a better angle if you take it? Yeah, I mean, maybe I should have got one of those... A selfie stick. Selfie stick. Should I carry around? Maybe I should be carrying around a selfie stick. Here's what you should do the next time. I'm glad you are. Yeah, I'm it- glad you are. And then I bring out my selfie stick. <laughs> I mean, that's not a bad idea, actually. Yeah, yeah. And, and can I ask the, you know, the slightly uncomfortable question? Were people asking for selfies or were you just offering them as I've seen you do before? I'll tell you if I'm honest. I mean, people do, lots of people ask for them, but also it is quite a, it's quite a good way of signalling an end of a conversation. If somebody wants to come and talk to you about an idea <laughs> and you've got to get somewhere, you say, well, that's great. Would you like a photo? As in, I'm now 
got to leave somewhere. Yes. Do you see what I mean? Yes, I do, yeah. It's like a it's like a sort of version of well, it's been nice to meet you. Yes, it's good. Did you go to any discos? I, I really didn't, no. I didn't stay up late. I mean, for an old geezer like me, you can't stay up too late, you know what I mean? But you wouldn't stay out partying because that would involve human interaction. Oh, he- heaven forbid. No, there's no partying going on. I might go for a noctambulate, but that's uh, that's about it. What is a noctambulate? Night walking. I think certain types of um, Victorian gentlemen used to do it to walk around the city at night. Wearing a monocle. Yeah, and observe. You'd look good in a monocle. I think it would be quite a sort of distinguishing thing wouldn't it you don't think i'm distinguished enough already i think distinguishing i said rather than distinguished okay okay so it would it would sort of be an unusual thing but obviously you're very distinguished but it would give you more another distinguishing (laughs) feature (laughs) i mean clearly there is a difference i know uh all right do you want to tell them what you're so excited about this week being back with you but, but, but really, I mean, it's not being back with me that you're excited about. It's No, we are incredibly excited to have best-selling author, brilliant writer, Michael Lewis on to talk about his new book, Going Infinite, The Rise and Fall of a New Tycoon, about Sam Bankman-Fried, whose trial is going on as we speak in the United States. And he, by a strange quirk of fate, had an unprecedented amount of access. He did. And we, and I think we want to talk about not so much whether Sam Bankman-Fried is guilty or innocent, but what the book and and his sort of rise and fall says about our society. I think that's in a way the much more interesting question. If you've not been following the story, I'll just quickly explain who Sam Bankman-Fried is. He was the founder and CEO of a company called FTX, which at one point was valued at over $32 billion. And it was a platform that allowed customers to trade and invest in cryptocurrency. It collapsed in November of last year when a whole of $8 billion was found in its balance sheet. Now, Sam is currently being tried for several criminal charges, including fraud, although he pled not guilty. And in this interview, we'll refer to FTX and its sister company, Alameda Research, which was also a trading firm run by Sam's on-off girlfriend, Caroline Ellison. And FTX allegedly gave Alameda privileges it shouldn't have done And the trial is also looking into whether FTX was illegally propping up Alameda with its own funds. But Michael explains all of this really well in the book, so we won't go into it too much. And clearly the trial will decide his guilt or innocence in the charges levelled against him. And whatever the conclusions of that, over a million customers were basically left with nothing after FTX's collapse. And obviously that's an ongoing trial. So as Ed said, we're not going to get too deep into that, but more about Michael's book and his thoughts on why this was allowed to happen. And Michael is always a fantastic guest. His books are brilliant and he himself is a reason to be cheerful. Yes, exactly. So that's that. Mm. Uh, What's your reason to be cheerful, Jeff? I went to see a film at the London Film Festival last night. Oh, I've always wanted to go to London Film Festival. I think I must have been to one film there ever. What was the film you saw? The film I saw was called Together 99. Do you? I'm not sure if you would have ever seen it because it would have coincided with your Gordon Brown years, but there is a much-loved Swedish film called Together about some people living in a commune in the 70s. And really, it's a metaphor for Swedish society, but it's a really funny, lovely film. And the director, Lucas Mudison, who's made some interesting and some very challenging and then some 
plain odd films subsequently, uh, has revisited those characters who lived in the commune. Wow. Like 20 odd years on. It's called Together 99. And I really enjoyed it. And I Why is it called 99? Is it like Flake 99? <laughs> it's, it's set in 1999. Oh, wow. Yeah. With the same actors or Yes, not? yeah. Yeah, so I always love that, you know, they, they played them once in a film all these years ago and then you get to revisit them and see wow. how life's had its way with them. And yeah, I really enjoyed it. God, you make me want to watch the first one and the second one. I thought you can say you've made me want to live in a commune. No, not so much. Do I need to have seen the prequel to see oh, the sequel? Watch, watch the first one. The first one is such a delight anyway. And not dated. Not at all. Because it's kind of done in a almost documentary style. It's very simple, like dogma style of filmmaking. And actually that means it hasn't hasn't dated at all, especially given the fact that it was set in the 70s, so it's kind of a period piece anyway. Sounds great. It's great. Uh, what's your reason to be cheerful? I was sitting in the coffee shop at Cruise Station yesterday because I was on my way away from the Labour Party conference and a lady came and sat down about 10 feet away from me. It's relevant to the story. And she said, excuse me. I said, yes. She said, you look awfully like Rishi Sunak. (laughs) (laughs) What is the proper response to that? She was trying it on, right? She was trying to needle you. No, 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 no. She thought I was Rishi Sunak. Wow. It's the second time it's happened to me. It happened to me in a minicab about a year ago. A, A minicab driver said to me, Rishi Sunak, so great to have you in my cab. I think people are taunting you and you're not realising it. No, honestly, she thought I was Rishi Sunak. You should have said, travelling by train and not private jet. I don't think so. That's a good line, actually. Uh, Isn't that an extraordinary story? Yes. I mean, also, when it happened the first time, I just thought it was a sort of rogue minicab driver, but it's now happened the second time. It is also true that I got mistaken for Nick Clegg when after the 2015 yes, election. Yes, yes. Yeah, and this this makes me think that, you know, people say politicians are all the same. Exactly. That is very literal for some people. I know. Wow. So there you go. Confused with a prime minister. By someone other than yourself. Exactly. <laughs> Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, look, I am absolutely delighted that we are joined by Michael Lewis, who is in London, a friend of the... Pod. He's been on a couple of times before. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me back. Not everybody does. Oh, no, no. We would have you any time. This book is quite extraordinary. I mean, I have read the Michael Lewis collection, and I think this is the most extraordinary book because, well, because the story is jaw-dropping, but also because unlike any other book you've written, your main character was arrested uh, <laughs> while you were doing the book uh, and is currently on trial. Talk to us about that challenge, because this is a book like no other, a story like no other, isn't it? So it's the story of Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX, the cryptocurrency exchange. So the challenge of having my main character arrested in the middle of the book, I'd spent a year and a bit shadowing him and learning about his firm and interviewing all the people around him and so on and so forth, and still didn't know whether I had a book. I had fantastic scenes and a fantastic character, but I didn't have a story arc. I, you know, I knew it was going somewhere. I had no idea where. So then he gets arrested. And here's an odd thing about it. It actually made it easier. It, not only did it give me a third act to a story, 
But because he was a billionaire, you know, he was the world's richest person under the age of 30. He was, I don't know, Forbes had him at $22 billion. He had a plane. And so when he was at large, he was really difficult to shadow. I mean, just figuring out where he was going to be when, that in itself presented challenges. After he was arrested and he was locked up in his parents' house with an ankle bracelet on, he was mine. Uh, that he was an hour from my house. It was like he'd been delivered on a platter for the purpose of nonfiction narrative journalism. You know, I could go down and drive down every other weekend and spend 10 hours with him and pick his brain about all sorts of stuff. So it made it quite convenient. And then on top of it, I mean, I hate to put this in such callous terms, but you just asked me how it affected the process. <laughs> Early August, almost the moment I finished the book, he was taken away and put in the Metropolitan Detention Center in Brooklyn, where I couldn't reach him, but neither could any other journalist. And so it just locked him away with all my scoops. I thought someone in the prosecutor's office was trying to make sure that my book would, would receive the, <laughs> the maximum, be as good as it possibly could be, and then receive the maximum attention it could receive. What do you think was going on in his head to give you the kind of access that you were given? I think his calculations changed over time. In the very beginning, there were, I think, two factors. One was, he's a really unusual person, right? You know, claims to be devoid of feeling and didn't know how to make facial expressions when he was a kid and has all these attention issues and very, very bright and very mathy. And he encountered a book I wrote called Moneyball when he was 12, 13 years old. And it, it gave him, for a brief period, he wanted to be a baseball general manager because he read that book. And I think it gave him a sense that it validated his way of moving through life and thinking about the world and making calculations and lifted his sense of importance. So he knew who I was. That was one thing. And, and we had fond feelings about it. But the second thing is when I meet him, he's on a full court press to... Um, to be the legitimate crypto exchange. He's pleading with governments around the world to regulate him and give him licenses and thus give him a competitive edge over the other crypto exchanges. He wants to be legitimate inside the United States so he has access to the American investor. And I think he thought that partly because of a book I wrote called Flash Boys, which caused a stir in the American regulatory community and still gets kind of talked about in terms of how the stock market should get regulated. I think he thought that I might be a chance for him to to be legitimized in the in the minds of regulators mm. i think six months into it i was around and it was too late to do anything about it it was too late to get rid of me because uh, i'd i'd talked to too many people seen it had been it had been socially weird to get rid of me and then once he's arrested i was in this odd position of having a context for everything so it was no one who was going to walk in and write about him then was going to know what it looked like and what everybody said when things were good so I think, I think it shifted. I think he had different motives and different periods of our relationship. Now, you've written about many rich people over the years. I think it's sort of worth highlighting this effective altruism thing, because I think that does make him, and this is not a defense of him, but it does make him unusual, doesn't it? And I think it's kind of worth locating him in in that space in the universe of rich people who might go to jail yeah he's he is unusual <laughs> i think he's the yeah. you know i would say un unique there are two things that create sam bankman fried one is what it ha on that wall street had evolved to become a place that turned math kids into money people it took someone who was had absolutely no social abilities 
and found made him very useful and very valuable in the financial markets and gave him that as his purpose. So he has an ability to generate vast sums of money in the financial markets combined with this movement, effective altruism, that he collides with when he's at university. He's at MIT in Cambridge. The movement, by the way, this is one of the rare moments, I think maybe the only moment in my writing where the weird shit that infects the world doesn't come from America, but comes from England. The effective altruism is born here. It's born at Oxford. It's the brainchild of some philosophers who are disciples of an Australian philosopher named Peter Singer. It kind of grows out of utilitarianism. You could probably trace it all the way back to Bentham. So it's somewhere in the, it's in the, it's in the air or in the water in England. There's a, a philosopher named Toby Ord who makes the point kind of unobjectionable but interesting point that at very little cost to himself, if he gives away some of his income, he can actually save lives in Africa. He makes some calculation that if he gives away half his income for the rest of his career, he'll prevent 80,000 African children from going blind. And this is the beginning of the, the quantification of philanthropy. Let's figure out the smartest way to lead your life to maximize the lives you save. And by the time the proselytizers of the idea get to Sam Bankman-Fried, they're making an argument. And it's an argument that Sam and a lot of kids like him find very persuasive. And the argument is, you have a duty to go out and live your life to maximize the number of lives you save. And one way you might do this is by earning to give. So instead of going and becoming a doctor in Africa, if you have a talent on Wall Street, go earn millions of dollars and send 20 doctors to Africa. That's a far more effective way of being altruistic. So Sam Beckford swallows this hook, line, and sinker as a purpose in life. And it gives him not only an idea that kind of guides his behavior, but gives him a social network. He gives him a community of people kind of like him. When I'd met him, this is where you would have been forced to contemplate this marvel. This person who is totally ill-suited to the social side of finance is now all of a sudden got a place in finance where he can make not millions, but billions of dollars. And he does it not because he's interested in finance or money, but because he's figured out his purpose in life is to give money away. And I just found that spectacular. You, got, you set out to make money, give it away. And in 18 months, you've made $21 billion. And some people have, in the uh, wake of the trial, some people have su- suggested that that side of him has been overplayed. But you completely refute that. You no, know, I don't think even his worst critics inside the effective altruist movement would say he was insincere about his beliefs. They might say he was the, you know, he was the worst thing that ever happened to effective altruism. But, but the, the view of the other effective altruists uh, of Sam was always, he's the most extreme about it. He's the one who's willing to make the most sacrifices in his life. The only thing Sam didn't do that sort of established your bona fides in the effective altruist community was give a kidney away. He admired the people who did. He, he said he had no tolerance for physical pain, and that was the one thing he wasn't going to do. Would I be right in thinking that that explains why you warmed to him? In the beginning, I just, I don't think I'd have ever thought to write his story. I, I didn't, you know, I didn't, right. I didn't meet him or seek him out because I wanted to write about him. A friend called me and asked me to evaluate him because they were going to do a business deal. And I'd never heard of him. And I, I got interested in the first place for a couple of reasons. Well, this is a strange situation. He's, he's, 
He's got $20 billion already on his way to God knows how much. And he's, and he's only accumulating it to give it away and give it away in very disruptive ways. Part of his disruptive ambition was to, to give it away in, in ways that prevented Donald Trump from ever becoming president again. So that was interesting. The second thing, it was interesting to me how the world had reshaped itself around this new pile of money. I mean, if you think in, in the history of capitalism, it's only very, very recently that if someone has been able to generate such wealth so quickly. Forbes magazine calculated it was the fastest anybody had generated wealth. You used to have to, you know, dig oil wells and build railroads. And it, it, they took, it took careers to build this kind of wealth, not 18 months. And that interested me. It's sort of like the social effects of this. But the third thing was, and this may stri strike you as strange because it seems like it's a story about cryptocurrencies, but, it was, but I'd always been kind of resistant to cryptocurrencies as a subject because all the people who came at me from that world were so fanatical about it that they would, they would tell me a story that just didn't ring true. And Sam's story was, I don't know if cryptocurrencies are going to exist in 10 years. It may be all BS, uh, but it's useful for me as a tool to make money. And I thought this is a more interesting way to write about cryptocurrency is through the eyes of someone who isn't selling me stuff about it that's just not true. Those are the initial sparks of interest. Obviously, the story has become what it's become. What were the other stories you thought might be the likely thing here while you were still figuring it out? That's a really interesting question because there's a point in the process of this book. And the point is early November of last year when I did not know I had a book. I'd spent a year with him. I've done this before where I've spent that much time trying to gather the material for a book and I just had to walk away. And I had what looked like essentially two acts of a three-act drama and I didn't have a third act. And it, had it not all fallen apart and not imploded in a moment and had he not been hauled off to, to jail and it, it had this whole third act not occurred, there were things that would have been amplified. His activities in, in American politics, trying to pay Donald Trump not to run for president, the mucking around in Republican primaries, all that stuff, some of their trading strategies inside of his trading firm would have gotten a bit more play. And I'll give you an example. There are thousands of cryptocurrencies now. Bitcoin is the best known, but there are thousands of them. And one of them, essentially the most comic of them, is called Dogecoin. And Dogecoin is essentially Elon Musk coin. Whenever he tweets about it, it goes up. Whenever he doesn't, it goes down. And, um, and they started anticipating, analyzing when Elon Musk was going to say something about it or not. They, they made a whole bunch of money. When Elon Musk went on to host Saturday Night Live, the whole market boomed in Dogecoin because the market assumed that, oh, well, Dogecoin's going to get all this play. And they figured out that Saturday Night Live would not allow him to plug Dogecoin on Saturday Night Live. So they shorted that they bet against it on the way in and then bought it on the way out. And, and so all this stuff just ends up on the cutting room floor. So there was stuff like that that just didn't really, it didn't have to be there anymore. But I've never had so much on the floor that was actually material that was worthy of being between hardcovers. Extended paperback, extended paperback, <laughs> plus, plus the trial. Bonus <laughs> material. Um, so people who've written about the book and reviewed the book have sort of sort of said in a way that the most interesting, you know, one of the most interesting questions is, does Michael Lewis think this guy was guilty or innocent? I actually don't think that's the most interesting question. I think the most interesting question is, what do you think the fact that this was allowed to happen, which as I read it, I thought to myself, I've got a 12-year-old son and it's like letting 
my 12-year-old son and, like, <laughs> six of his friends make $30 billion, like, without any clue what they're doing, with no financial controls, with no guardrails, uh, and, like, you know, then see what happens. And, I mean, isn't that the most interesting question? What does it say, Michael, about our society that this could have happened? So, I, from the beginning, I thought this story, even after it all fell apart, it was less Bernie Madoff than, um, than Ferris Bueller's day off. Let loose in politics and the financial markets and all the rest. What does it say? It says... We've hit some sort of tipping point in the relationship of individual power to institutional power. He is a byproduct of the decay in institutional trust and institutional authority. He's a poster child for the need for reg- regulation, right? He's operating in a an un- unregulated markets are semi-regulated or lightly regulated that are touching the lives of millions of people. And nobody has the nerve to actually get their arms around it and say, you can do this, you can't do that. Until it all goes really bad, then they put a few people in jail. But, but, but they don't stop the bad thing from happening. One of the thoughts, uh, the themes running through the book is Sam Bankman-Fried and his colleagues' disdain for grown-ups. And, and essentially, if you had to say, what is driving so much of Sam Bankman-Fried's behavior and put it in a sentence, the sentence is, Sam Bankman-Fried thinks institutions suck. He thinks institutions don't work. And he's not wrong about it. Look at, what are these effective altruists animated by at the moment? The need to address existential risks to humanity. Having a global pandemic prevention network, which actually makes a lot of sense. There's no reason we couldn't build a kind of weather service for disease and have better prediction, better prevention, or uh, regulating artificial intelligence so it doesn't wipe us all out, or climate change. That it is so frustrating to watch governments not do what they need to do. And, and so one of the reasons Sam happens and people gather around him is their frustration with that and their just relief that someone is going to try to do something. So he speaks exactly to that. I think that's right. That's the biggest lesson of the whole story. But it is sort of a literal aversion to grown-ups as well. It's not just grown grown-ups uh, as institutions. I have a theory. It's I don't peddle it in the book, but but he had two very 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 bright parents but who were narrow. They were two tax law professors at, at, St- at Stanford who, who didn't celebrate birthdays, who didn't celebrate birthdays, didn't, didn't know what Santa Claus was until he was eight years old. It was just, it was an unusual upbringing, but um, I, I love his parents, but they are, they're beloved on the Stanford campus. Uh, they're delightful people. They did their best kind of thing. But, but Sam, I think was raised in an environment where he could see his parents at the dinner table running intellectual circles around the grown-ups in the world. Like, look how stupid this person is. Look how stupid this person is. And at the same time, he was very isolated from other, other children, like had no real friends, didn't, was not accepted, was mildly ostracized by his peers. And so um, developed a kind of romantic view of himself as sort of superior. He stood apart watching the world and thought about everything that was wrong with it. And by the time he's 18, I think he thinks that he's just like like smarter than all grownups. He didn't have any time for his teachers. uh, He never had a teacher who meant anything to him. He didn't look up to anybody, ever. 
that infected his whole operation. That that and he, as he said, we tried having grown-ups, but all they did was worry about stuff, and they worried about stuff excessively. And the only way to get them to stop worrying about one thing was to give them something else to worry about. And and that was his. That was kind of his summation of the value of grown-ups. They sat around and worried about stuff. And I guess maybe you sort of implicitly or explicitly already said this, but that the sort of Silicon Valley tech bro anti-government sort of libertarianism is that part of this so this this was endearing to me about him because if you look at his upbringing and you look at his aptitudes and and look at just where he grew up you would have predicted he would have become one of these numbnut libertarians. Yeah. And for whatever reason, Sam Bankman-Fried does not bounce in that direction. He bounces actually almost in the opposite direction. He looks at libertarianism and he says, really what it is is just a mask for selfishness. And he gravitates to, oddly, given he has no particular feeling for any other human being, oddly towards he, he needs to live in the service of humanity more generally. And effective altruism gives him a like vessel for, for this. And he finds it a more, a more satisfying way to go through his life. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I think there's a great irony in some of what's been written about your book, which is people saying, oh, Michael Lewis has been taken in by Sam Bankman-Fried, but they don't ever talk about all the people who actually were taken in by <laughs> Sam Bankman-Fried. Yes, this is funny. I mean, like politicians, celebrities, Anna Winter, you know, I mean, like... But, but don't, you th- don't you just think this is, like, when something like this happens, in- instead of wanting to say, oh, God, we were all complicit in that, isn't it better to find a head and put it on a spike and say, look at that person, they were taken in? This has been interesting to me. This is a momentary response. I don't think anybody who reads the book says, oh, he was taken in by Sam Bankman-Fried. But so the book only came out nine days ago. It was embargoed. It was impossible to read until nine days ago. Within a nanosecond of it coming out, there were all these reviews out. People, if you actually sit and imagine the pressures on this writer when he's sitting down to write this book, 
and I start writing it in January. The pressure isn't, oh, I must please Sam Bankman-Fried. He's under house arrest, and he's the most hated man in the world. All the pressure is join the mob that wants to lynch him. And and anybody, and you see this in the coverage of the coverage of him, everybody who writes or talks about him does so in the presence of a mob. And it's journalism in the presence of a mob. And so it's all tilted in a certain direction. I certainly felt no obligation to, to service Sam Bankman-Fried. I did think it's going to be a shitstorm when this thing comes out because the reality of it is so much more nuanced than the public portrayal and more interesting, and he's more interesting. And you got to understand how interesting the story is that the main business was actually a gold mine and how they blew it up was bizarre and unnecessary. So there are these wrinkles to it that you have to put your nose right up against if you're going to understand what happened. I read the book thinking you're giving us your account and it's for the jury to decide whether he's guilty or innocent. It's for us to decide whether we think he's guilty or innocent, yeah. you know, end, end of. Yeah, but, but that makes people angry. The, the withholding of judgment makes people angry. And I don't understand that. So anyway, yes, the there there has been this kind of bumpy beginning to the book, that which has caused other people to say, has anybody read the book? Well, they hadn't read the book. Now they're reading the book. And so now they'll read the book and that will all sort itself out. I'll tell you what's interesting as well is, is that I, I think I tend to dislike a, a kangaroo court and um, trial by media and people feeling they have to make their minds up about people th- through uh, news reports and scraps of things they've they've read in newspapers. The justice system serves as well because people have to sit through long, boring amounts of proper evidence. But there's 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 some way in which this trial is playing out compared to the the access you've been given that almost makes the justice system feel a bit reductive. Well, it is reductive, right? You, there's only there's certain things you can introduce in the court. I mean, here's a, here's an interesting piece of reduction. The prosecutors have asked the judge not to allow the defense to ask questions about the likelihood that all the depositors are going to get their money back. They think that's beside the point. Doesn't strike me as beside the point that if you're accusing a person of having stolen the money and the money's still there, that seems relevant. It, but it appears, if you listen to the bankruptcy people, there was $8.6 billion of customer deposits that were missing when the dust settled on this disaster. And they have recovered $7.3 billion of it. And they haven't recovered by going out and taking it back from people that Sam gave money to. That's mainly not what's happened. They found the money, like Easter eggs, that it was on exchanges and in banks and in pots and in wallets inside of Alameda Research. And in addition, this is what's got everybody's everybody on the, on the prosecution, I think, a little nervous, is that um, Sam Bankman-Fried had a portfolio of venture capital investments, a couple of hundred of investments in small companies, startups. And uh, this is one of the things that he put customer money into, allegedly. And one of the investments is an uh, artificial intelligence company called Anthropic. And Anthropic, when I, when I met, first encountered the guy running the bankruptcy, John Ray, who was determined to help the prosecutors do as much damage to Sam Bankman-Fried as they could, he says to me, look how stupid this guy was. He put $500 million into this thing that's just an idea called Anthropic. It's not worth anything. It's just an idea. And he was going to sell it. He was, they were talking about just getting, unloading it for pennies. But right after he said that, 
uh, Google or someone made an investment that implied Anthropic was worth four $4 billion. And, and now it's Google and Amazon are making more investments that's, that imply Anthropic is worth $30 billion. And it's if Sam Bankman-Fried's you know, corpse owns a you know, 16% stake of this thing, they have enough to give everybody back their deposits. This is in the book that, that this is, but it's not, it may never find its way to the jury, the jury. They may never hear about this. Can I ask you what, what people have written about the book? I've disagreed with quite a lot of it, but I do want to ask you about Caroline Ellison. You reveal quite a lot of intimate details about her relationship with Sam, which I assume came from Sam. It, it came from her, her memos that she wrote. Yeah, yeah. And also, her therapist talks in great detail about his his discussions with her. I mean, like no therapist that I've ever known would think that was an okay thing to do. Oh, let's hope not, Ed. Well, let's hope <laughs> not, Jeff. Uh, I mean, nobody's raised this in the reviews, but it made me feel quite uncomfortable. Me too, but with an asterisk. So the the psychiatrist who in San Francisco was serving essentially is the psychiatrist to effect, effective altruists in the Bay Area, had as patients Caroline and Sam and a bunch of the others. Sam moves him to the Bahamas to become the psychiatrist to the whole company. And he is, ends up being an excellent source for me in how this place worked and who was happy and who was unhappy and, and the nature of Sam and Caroline's relationship, et cetera, et cetera. In the Bahamas... He was never licensed as a psychiatrist, and so his title at the company ended up being, I don't know, chief performance coach. And so the stuff, for the the vast majority of the stuff he's talking about, he's talking about as chief performance coach. So if you want to give him an out, that's the out. But but hang on a minute, Michael. Some of it appears to be his one-to-one conversations with Caroline. A little bit of it is, and that's true. It's true. And some of it is his one-to-one conversations with Sam. I was grateful he was willing to talk to me, but I understand your concerns. What does this story have in common with other stories that you've written in the past? It might be the book of mine that encompasses the most of my other books. And I'll give you what I was running through my head. One, the whole Moneyball thing, using probabilistic thinking instead of gut judgment to make decisions infects Sam Bankman-Fried in every aspect of his life in preposterous ways, like being making expected value calculations about having children, for example. So it's so Moneyball is there in spades. The Blind Side was a book about all the forces in the world that changed the value of a person, a single person. And this book is, too, in some ways, that it's Sam Bankman-Fried as a person. He goes from being a socially isolated nobody uh, as a, uh, an 18-year-old to being the world's richest person under the age of 30 and, and, and a cult figure. Rhymes a bit with The Fifth Risk, which, is, which was a story of what we're about to lose in the United States government, in the civil service, by our neglect of it, our misunderstanding of institutions and their roles. And... Um, and there's no question that the rise of people like Sam, and for that matter, Elon Musk, is, is a byproduct of the decline in institutional authority. Flash Boys was about, oh my God, this, all this unnecessary financial intermediation has entered the financial markets and allowed people who probably shouldn't exist to become billionaires. Uh, and crypto is in part a response to that. Crypto is the promise of getting rid of all these financial I- intermediaries. 
And finally, Liar's Poker. I realized that this was the first time since Liar's Poker where I've had a financial story where the guardrails of a kind of conventional conduct had been removed. And it, the, the outrageous behavior was different, but it was the same feeling of your jaw is going to be on the floor about what's going on behind these doors in what is supposed to be a grown-up corporation. And the response to Liar's Poker was, well, we're going to make sure nobody sees what's inside. Who knows what the response to this will be? I'm worried now, having heard you sum it up in that way, that it's it's tied together your life's work and re- retirement is imminent. <laughs> <laughs> well, some people think I should never write again. Uh, <laughs> some people think I've lost my mind. I don't feel that way. I feel, I assume eventually I'll feel like maybe I want to do something else, but I have a feeling when I sit down and I've got a story and I've got all this, it takes, it takes a long time. It's like a gathering storm. Like it takes a year, 18 months, two years to get the stuff. It's almost like a almost physical feeling of, of testing my abilities and my, my muscles and uh, are my muscles up to the job. And I felt like I've gotten stronger as a writer. I feel more confident when I go at material now than I did even 10 years ago. What was the last conversation you had with Sam before he was put in prison? You know, this is funny. I wasn't sure. I had several thoughts about how I was going to end the book. There was some part of me that thought, maybe I'll end it by putting Sam effectively on a witness stand. And I'll ask him every rude question that the prosecutors are going to ask him. Also, my head said not to do this, too, because I'd also actually kind of done this already in bits and pieces. I'd just not done it systematically like a prosecutor would. I realized at some point it was probably not going to work on the page. It was going to be kind of stilted and awkward. But the last thing I had conversation I had with him was, when are we going to do this? Uh, He was game. But it didn't happen because he got. He got, he got put in jail. Yes. He hasn't read the book. Or if he's read the book, it's been in the last 24 hours because he only got given the book on a thumb drive uh, yesterday by his lawyers. He did, however, this is a, a fun note. A week ago Sunday, the book was kind of effectively launched with a television program in the United States called 60 Minutes. And I don't I didn't realize this, but. They allow the prisoners to watch television, and they all gathered around the television set, Sam and his cellmates and his prison guards. And the cellmates were, I was told, the former president of Honduras and the former attorney general of Mexico. And at the end of it, the prison guards wanted crypto investment advice from Sam. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I'm telling you, there is something you learn as doing what I do is that the unaided imagination is a very poor thing compared to what life generates. Like life <laughs> generates just stuff that you would never, you could never invent. Well, look, Michael Lewis, the book is Going Infinite, The Rise and Fall of a New Tycoon. As always, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. I mean, I must say, I've always found him, Michael Lewis, you know, ever since I started reading his stuff 25 years ago, it's so compelling. And I just felt the same listening to him. I don't know about you. Yeah, well, you, you were a fanboy from the start, weren't you? I was. Since when have you been a fan? And I knew um, Moneyball and The Big Short, but it was the podcast, really, that got me onto him. And I think he's so brilliant. And obviously, the trial is ongoing. And I think what's so interesting about the book, in, in the light of the fact that the trial is now happening is that obviously the the judicial process is there to determine whether laws have been broken and laws yeah. are very black and white and the outcome of yeah. that will be what it is. But then what Michael's 
book does is is colors in that it's it's always human beings who do these things and that they're a sum of their lives they're not pantomime goodies and baddies um and that isn't to to make any excuses or be any kind of apologist but i think it's really important to understand that human beings do things and not for oversimplified reasons but also i mean like crucially what is it about the society that allows this to happen? Exactly. Yeah. You know, whether whether he, Sam Bankman-Fried is found guilty or innocent, like even if he's found innocent, money was lost, people lost their livelihoods, you know, certainly people who work for him, potentially others. What is it about our society and our system of regulation and all of that 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 allowed that to happen? I mean, it seems to me that that is the most profound question that this whole episode raises. Yes, the, the way in which we will buy into pretty insane behaviour until it doesn't suit us anymore, despite all the evidence that we've got. I don't know if it's the idea of magic individuals or if it's just as simple as that people hope to make a lot of money out of it. The things that people are willing to ignore until they're not, if you see what I mean. We're 15 years on from the financial crisis. Uh, I didn't mention this in the interview, but, you know, we've got many of the features we saw in that. Um, maybe not the sort of, obviously not the systemic collapse that we saw in relation to that, but, you know, incredibly complex transactions, these sort of massive losses, opaque structures, failure of regulation. It all feels like quite a similar set of factors here and in a way i think part of the reading a book like this is you've got to think well what lessons does this teach us more broadly about about what we should be doing to to regulate some of this stuff send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com find us on facebook or tweet at cheerful podcast whoa ho ho we're in the outro ho ho we are ho 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 now you recommended Boiling Point to me the other day, but you did do it with a sort of health warning. Yes, I, I added the caveat, you might find it a little too anxiety-inducing. Yes, so just tell our listeners about it. Yes, so uh, I guess Stephen Graham is the biggest name in it. It's set in the kitchen of a high-end restaurant. Based on a film which totally went over my head and I never saw. It was during the pandemic. I had some awareness of it, but I thought, I don't know if I can put myself through this on top of everything else. And it was one of those films where they do it all in a single shot from start to yeah. finish, which is how they do the first episode of the TV series. There are four of them. It's airing on the BBC, but they're all on iPlayer. And it's just that very high-octane tense environment of both the kitchen and the service as well as the stuff that's going on in personal lives and it's brilliant brilliantly acted but it's uh it's it's incredibly stressful as well we watched about the first 15 minutes and am i wrong to find it a little bit slow oh i didn't find it at all slow that's uh, i think because of the way that the anxiety's ratcheted up but the first 15 minutes of that first episode are done like the film in a single shot when you were watching it were you um, were you reminded of yourself in your kitchen making your Black beans and your various... Potato pancakes. Yes. Uh, no, I mean, I could see how it was very stressful working in a restaurant. How often when you're cooking on your own... Yeah. ...are you, um, like, shouting and swearing and muttering and making groaning noises? Quite a lot, yeah. Yeah, the thoughts. Do you listen to anything while you're doing it? David Ronsonman. <laughs> Sarah is obsessed with his new podcast. I mean, it's really good. Like my, my two partners, my podcast husband and my real-life wife, are now obsessed with this other man. It's time to start singing Ronsonman in the shower again. 
Right. Should we thank our guest, uh, Michael Lewis? It was a great conversation. He is quite brilliant and we're very lucky to have him. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer is our content producer, supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made our eye dance and our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.